The rest of you, uh, if you can turn in your Bibles to uh, Psalm 74. Psalm 74. And as you're turning to Psalm 74, um, does anybody here uh, like movies? Any movie fans? Um, anybody have uh, the, the problem in your, in your family of having trouble deciding on what movie to watch? I know that uh, growing up in the Shoop family, sometimes it felt like it took half an hour to decide on what movie that we were going to watch on a family night. And uh, even now, now that I'm, I'm grown and married, and even though Andy and I agree on almost everything, we sometimes have trouble deciding on what, what movie to watch. Um, although I would say that in the last year and a half, two years, I've watched more chick flicks than the rest of my life combined. Um, but to be fair, she would probably say that she's watched more action movies in the last year and a half than the rest of her life combined. So, <laughs> yes. Um, but this morning, well, does anybody here uh, kind of like sometimes at least more of kind of dark, somber movies, like not necessarily feel-good movies, but maybe they don't end quite as well? I occasionally will be in the mood to watch something like that. This morning, I feel kind of like I'm the guy that is recommending a really depressing movie to his group of friends and preaching from Psalm 74, um, and with the title, The Song of a Nation. Um, Like last week, it's not necessarily uh, a feel-good psalm, and it doesn't necessarily end well, at least if you finish reading at the end of this psalm. Um, In some ways, you can actually think of Psalm 74 kind of like last week's psalm that Pastor Bart preached on, Psalm 42, but more on a national corporate level. And the title of this message, The Song of a Nation, um, was already assigned to me several weeks ago, but in light of a lot of recent uh, national events, um, preaching on this, this, The Song of a Nation has an extra sense of weightiness to me. Um, And if I were to give this sermon a, a subtitle, it would be how to pray when you're in a crisis. And I hope that you'll see, hopefully that makes sense soon. Um, in our, our summer series, a summer of songs, we're looking at different types of psalms, a different type every week. And today we're looking at what's called a community lament. A community lament. And actually, uh, laments, I didn't know this, but laments make up the largest category of the psalms. And... But I want to point out a couple of things before we dive into Psalm 74. Even though this psalm is the, the song of a nation, um, it's important not to think that Old Testament Israel is equivalent to modern-day America, because it's, it's not. And there's many reasons why, um, but Old Testament Israel was, was the people of God. And as many, as many times Pastor Bart has pointed out, the people of God has always been the people of faith. Um, so... Really, this is Old Testament Israel would be much closer to, to the church than anything else. Um, however, I believe that this psalm has, has application for both the church, both fullness and corporately um, as a whole, and also our nation um, as a whole. On a, a national level, um, our country does continue to run further and further away from God's word and God's truth on so many levels. And I shudder to think um, at, at what kind of world my daughter, um, who's going to be here in just a, f- a couple of months, just a few months, um, what kind of world she's going to be growing up in. And I know that um, you who have kids and grandkids feel the, the same way. But I don't want this message to simply be a, a reactionary message. 
to, to any, any national events that happen in our country or around the world. Um, how many know the Supreme Court or Hollywood or ISIS does not set the precedent for how we live as Christians? God's Spirit and God's Word set the precedent for how we live. Um, on a church level, on a local church level, there have been a lot of changes the last several years. People coming and going, and I know that we've had a lot of people who've had trials of different kinds, varying kinds of trials, um, both more personally, individually, and even more on, on a more of a corporate level. And it can be frustrating, at least I know it can be frustrating for me to know how to pray in times like this when it's unclear what God is is doing. So how do we talk to God? How do we balance rejoicing in the Lord? Because we know we're commanded to rejoice always with being realistic about the situations that we're found in. And I think that that this psalm, Psalm 74, gives a vocabulary of, of how to talk to God, how to come to God, how to pray when you're in a crisis, whether it be on a national level or, or an individual level or a church level, whatever. And so I want to kind of dive into this psalm and look at Psalm 74 specifically for a couple of points and then kind of zoom out at the end and kind of look at this psalm more in, in Scripture as a whole um, to finish. But first, what's, what's the situation here in Psalm 74, in this community lament? What is, what is going on? Um, first of all, I, I did say it, it is a community lament, and it was written by a guy named Asaph. Um, who was a worship leader and a prophetic seer. Um, but it was likely composed, likely written, to be performed at services that were mourning the destruction of the temple. Um, Babylon had come in and, and sacked Jerusalem and, and destroyed the temple, burned the temple around 587, 586 B.C. And so this psalm was probably written for Israel to come together as, a, as one and, and sing to, to lament corporately over the destruction of their temple. And really the part of the psalm that, that, that shows this is, uh, is in verses 3 through 9. And I'm going to try to use the clicker this morning. We'll see uh, how it goes. Okay. <clears throat> verses 3 through 9 of Psalm 74. The psalmist prays. Direct your steps, talking to God here, direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They have set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. And all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see any signs. There is no longer any prophet. And there is, no, there is none among us who knows how long. I know that for us, we, we don't have a temple. We don't go to a, a temple to worship because we're after the time of Christ. And so it can be harder for us to understand the significance for the people of God, the people of Israel of what this, what this would have meant for the temple to be destroyed. Um, but one scholar, one scholar says um, in describing this what, this, what this would mean for them, he says the destruction of the temple puts a question against the rule of God. The temple on Mount Zion is the institutional sign of God's mastery of creation and history. 
So for the people of Israel to have their temple destroyed, it, it suddenly it puts into question in their minds, is God still in control? Is God still in charge of what's going on? The temple was also the place we know where the people of God would come to meet with God, where they would commune with God. And so not only does it put into question God's rule and God's authority, but it puts into question the nearness of God, God's presence. And does God care? Another scholar, a Hebrew scholar, and I'm not even going to begin to pronounce his name, um, but he says this in describing it. He says, In the eyes of the people, the temple constituted primarily the divine dwelling place of the God of Israel, which set them apart from other nations. With the destruction of the temple, the established framework of the nation was undermined, and a wall of steel formed a barrier between Israel and its heavenly Father. Has anyone ever gone through a time where you feel like there's just a wall of steel separating you from, from your father and your prayers just seem like they're hitting this wall of steel? But it even gets worse than that. Verse 9 says, We are given no signs from God and no prophets are left and none of us knows how long this will be. For whatever reason, God had chosen not to speak to any of the prophets, not to give them any prophets during this season. So there's no one hearing from God. They're like, well, have you heard a word from God? No. Well, have you heard a word from God? Nobody's hearing anything from God during this season. God seems to be quiet. And none of them really knows how long this season's going to go on, this this time. So this is a a crisis mode, a time of crisis for the people of Israel. But for us, living today, 21st century America, um, what does it mean for the, the temple to be destroyed for us in our lives? And I came up with just a few possibilities. Um, these may not be true for everyone, but some of these may be true for some people. Um, for some of us, it, it might mean possibly the abandonment of traditional biblical values that our nation was founded upon. It, it could be the, the turning away from biblical truth of politicians um, on a state or national level of, of laws being passed that are, that are not pleasing to God. For some, it could mean the secularization of, of our educational system. For some, it could mean the, the prevalence of Hollywood and the entertainment industry or, or media. Um, for, for others, it, it could be the, the growing persecution of Christians around the world and even the growing possibility of opposition to the church in America. For many, maybe it's just the falling apart of their personal lives. Maybe a death in the family or the loss of health or the loss of a job. And then for others, it could just simply be being in a season of life where you feel like you're not hearing from the Lord and and God just seems distant and uninvolved in your life. So really, to sum up what it would mean for us for the temple to be destroyed, I would just say, um, really... It's anything that throws into question God's control and God's presence in your life. So how do we, how do we respond? When, how do we pray? How do we approach God, both individually and as a whole, when we're in a time of crisis? Well, I see at least three ways from this psalm, um, and I'm sure there's more, but, but I see at least three. And number one is be honest with God in the crisis. Be honest with God in the crisis. How do the, the people of God pray to God during this time. One of the things that they do is they ask God questions. Specifically, they ask God, why? Verse 1 and verses 10 and 11, they say, Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? 
Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. And so they're just being honest with, with God. Um, the enemy, I think, wants us to, to isolate ourselves both from each other and from God. But honesty, when we come to God honestly, it, it's really, it's being vulnerable. I see honesty as vulnerability before God. And, and it's inviting him to, to come and do work on your hearts when you're honest before him. Personally, um, in, in our family, um, my sister, Emily, who lives up in Kansas City with her husband, she married uh, into a great godly family, a big family. And um, one of, one of uh, her brothers-in-law, um, one of the sons in that family, um, he was going in January of this year, of 2015, he had to go in for, for a surgery, um, uh, from, for some work to be done on his heart. And several years ago, he'd had major, major heart problems, and God had miraculously healed him um, in, a, in a huge way. But he had to go in to get some more work done on his heart this January. And um, I mean, I guess it's always major surgery when you get work done on your heart, but it wasn't supposed to be life-threatening surgery. Um, but things didn't go as, as was planned um, in the surgery. And we, we got word quickly after he had gone in that, uh, that he slipped into a coma. And then he had very little brain activity. And so people started interceding for him. I mean, even people here at Fullness, I know, were praying for, for him. And he was, he was like 20, 21. Um, and literally around the world there were people praying for him. And, and literally crying out to God, interceding, weeping before the Lord praying for his healing. Um, but I remember getting word on February 12th of this year that um, my brother-in-law Joshua called me and just let me know, um, hey, my, my brother has, has gone to be with Jesus. Um, he's, he's left. And I know that, that there were a lot of people honestly asking God, why? Why? This, to us, this doesn't seem to make sense. I mean, this, he was 20, 21 years old really godly guy. I mean, the type of guy that you would want your sister or your, your daughter to, to bring home and to marry and the type of guy that you know that could have done a lot of stuff for the kingdom. And it's like, why, God? Why would you take someone so young? Take someone like that. But I think that, I think that God's okay with that when we're honest with him about that. Um, but, but the psalmist doesn't stop there at just being honest with, with the Lord. There's a turn in this psalm starting in verse 12. Which brings me to point two, and it's, it's um, remind yourself of God's faithfulness in the past and appeal to God's glory for the present. So it's kind of two points in one, but remind yourself of God's faithfulness in the past and appeal to God's glory for the present. I know that Pastor Bart really covered um, the importance of reminding ourselves about the truths of God last week, so I'm not going to spend much time on this, but just really just simply read um, what, what the psalmists do to remind themselves of God. Because this, this whole idea of reminding yourself of, of who God is and of what he has done pops up a lot in the psalms, which tells me that it's important. So verse 12, um, the psalmist, the people of God, this is what they pray. They say, yet, yet my God, God my King, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. 
Sorry, I'll catch up the psalm, the uh, slides there. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights in the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Not only does the psalmist remind himself of God's faithfulness, of God's deliverance from oppression in the past, but the psalmist starts making an appeal, starting in verse 18. What does the psalmist appeal to? He says this. He appeals to several things. One, he appeals to God's name in verse 18 and verse 21. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not, um, also in verse 21, let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. He appeals to God's people. In verse 19, do not deliver the soul of your dove, that's God's people, to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. He also appeals to God's covenant. In verse 20, have regard for the covenant. For the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. And finally, he appeals to God's cause. In verse 22, Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. This is a great way to pray in a time of crisis. To appeal to God's name, God's covenant, God's cause, the fact that we're God's people. Why? Well, because God is more committed to his glory, to his name, to his cause than anyone else alive. No one is more committed to the glory of God, to God's fame, than God is. No one is more committed to the people of God than God is. And so no one is more committed to God than God. Um, And there's there's a great passage, a great... um, verse in 1 Samuel 12 that I think makes this clear. It's a, it's a story that I think everyone knows if you've grown up in church. It's a story of where the people of Israel come to Samuel and they say, hey, um, we want a king so that we can be like all the other nations of the earth. We want to be like everyone else. So God allows them to do that. He says, um, I'll let you do that. Um, it's, it's not Samuel you're, they're rejecting. It's, it's me, but I'll let you have what you want. Um, and so they do that, and they realize that the king uh, is leading them into sin and idolatry, and so Samuel confronts them. Um, and so the people recognize that they have sinned in asking for another king besides God. And Samuel says these words to them. In 1 Samuel twelve, twenty and 22, he says this. <clears throat> and Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, But serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. The part that I want you to notice is the part that I've underlined. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake. So why do they not have to be afraid? Why can they keep following the Lord? 
Well, it's because God is not going to forsake them. But why? For his great namesake. The little word for is all important in this verse. God is not going to forsake them for because his great namesake. So in this passage, God is connecting two great truths. God is connecting his commitment to his name, to his fame, to his cause, to his covenant. But he's also connecting it to his commitment to his people in the earth. And so God is saying for him to be committed to one means he's committed to the other. It's not two distinct things. Because God is committed to his name, he is committed to his people. And this is an amazing bedrock truth you can build your life on. You can build your, your family on is that because God is committed to his name, he is also committed to his people. And this is what the people in Psalm 74 are appealing to. This is what they're praying. This is what they're banking their prayers on, their existence on. And when you, when you appeal to God's name, to God's cause, to God's covenant, to God's people, um, you can be guaranteed that you are praying in alignment with God's will. You can be guaranteed that you're praying in alignment with God's will. So that's really, that's Psalm 74. Um, that's really the psalm, and that's really kind of where it ends. And so if we stop there, it would be a little bit depressing, I think. So I want to zoom out for the last, the last point and kind of look at this in the context of all of Scripture. And, and the third point is this. Know that God has a plan bigger than what you can see. Know that God has a plan bigger than what you can see. Does God answer these prayers of Psalm 74? Does he answer the prayers of, of his people here? Yes. But does he answer these prayers in the way that the people of God were expecting? No, I don't think so. Even though the temple was rebuilt after this, um, that wasn't God's ultimate answer to this prayer. And <clears throat> I see God having really a threefold answer to, to these prayers. In one sense... He has answered them in the past. In one sense, he is answering them right now in the present. And in one sense, he has yet to answer them, but will answer them ultimately in the future. And hopefully that'll unfold here in a second. God sovereignly allowed the destruction of this temple. He sovereignly allowed the destruction of it by evil men in order to make way for a greater connection with his people. There's a really fascinating passage in Jeremiah 7. In Jeremiah 7, that depicts the attitude of the people of God before the temple was destroyed. So Psalm 74 is showing their attitude and their prayers after, after the temple has been destroyed. But Jeremiah 7, the first few verses, shows their attitude before this temple was destroyed. And the people of Israel have been living lives of sin and idolatry. They're not living lives that are pleasing to God. But their hope was in the fact that they had a temple, that they had a physical building, and because that they had religious rituals and practices that they would go and do there, and they had tradition there, and that was their hope. And so Jeremiah comes to them, and he says in verse 4 of Jeremiah 7, he says, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. So apparently, the Israelites had this little saying that they would say that they could basically live their lives however they pleased, but they would say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. All their hope was in this physical building. They were like, we have the temple, so we're good. 
And God is basically saying, hey, I'm not above destroying this temple. I'm not above removing this because it's doing nothing to change your hearts. And you're not really connecting with me because of this temple. So I'm not above even using evil people to move this temple out of the way. Do we do this? Before I move on, do we do this individually? Do we excuse how we live our lives throughout the week because we go to a great church on Sunday? Or as a nation, do we excuse the fact that we, in present time, live as a nation in a way that is not pleasing to the Lord just because of, oh, well, we were founded as a Christian nation. We were founded on Christian principles. Or, you know, we we were godly in the past. Do we excuse present immorality? Um, Do we excuse uh, present tense things on on stuff in the past, if that makes sense? Um, Hebrews makes it clear. Pastor Bart spent a long time last fall preaching on Hebrews. It makes it clear that the earthly temple was only ever meant to be a shadow, pointing to to a greater reality, that Jesus is the true temple. And so Jesus comes as the true temple. And he says in in John, several places in John, but he says in John chapter 2, verse 18, this is right after Jesus has come in, and actually upset the temple, disrupted the temple. And the, uh, the, the Jews come to him. And in verse 18, John 2, 18, Jews, the Jews say to him, What sign do you do to show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So, the destruction of the Old Testament temple, when read in the context of all of scripture, was really pointing to the greater reality of the destruction of the true temple, Jesus. So, Jesus at the cross, at the crucifixion, experiences what the Old Testament temple experienced. The desecration of the Old Testament temple, the burning, the destruction by evil men, that falls on Jesus at the cross. The gospel says, basically, Jesus has become the desecrated temple so that we might become the temple, the dwelling place of God. That's the gospel. And Jesus, not only that, but Jesus can relate personally to to the prayers of Psalm 74. Why, God? Why are you distant? Why, are you, why does this keep going on? Because he prays basically almost the same thing on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus becomes the destroyed temple so that we can become the temple of God. And then with Jesus' resurrection and Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit and the, the Spirit coming and filling believers, suddenly, now, we are the temple of God. Believers, both individually and corporately. And Paul makes this clear um, in 1 Corinthians. He says individually, he says in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Not only individually, though, but corporately. In 1 Corinthians three sixteen. Paul says, do you not know that you, and the you there is plural, that you 
the church are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. So God has answered these prayers in the past with Jesus coming as the true temple and being destroyed to which that the, the Old Testament temple pointed to. He's answering them in the present with now we are the dwelling place of God. We are the temple, both individually and as a whole. But then finally, he's yet to answer this prayer, and he will do it in the future when, um, when the entire universe becomes the temple of God. The end of Revelation, Revelation 21, 1 through 5, John says in his vision, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place, that's basically the temple, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So this is the coming reality, that the entire universe will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. But in order for all of these things to happen, all of these glorious ultimate answerings to the prayer, to the crying out of the people, what had to happen first? God had to move the old temple out of the way. God had to, and so God allowed, at the hands of evil men, a destruction of, of what seemed like the rule of God, of what seemed like the, the connection of God with his people. God sovereignly allowed that to be moved out of the way to make place for his greater answer to these prayers that the people of God could not have possibly seen at the time. And so God greatly desires to fellowship with his people, and he's sovereignly working his plan of history to that point, but he will not allow any ritual or tradition to replace relationship with him. <clears throat> Has anyone... Um, ever been to a, a life-sized maze. Um, I know at DeSoto Caverns, um, they had, or at least they used to have, I assume they still do, have a life-sized maze made out of wood where you can literally walk through the maze because it's, it's life-size. Um, I've, I've walked through those before, and, or a corn maze um, in the fall, they, they do those. And, and it's easy when you're walking through this life-sized maze to get, to get lost, Right? Um, and you're not really, you can get turned around, you're not really sure where you've come from, you're not really sure where you're heading. Um, but at, in the maze at DeSoto Caverns, the, this life-size wooden maze, at different points throughout the maze, there are these raised wooden platforms that you can climb upstairs, and you can get on these, these raised wooden platforms, and you can kind of look out over the maze. Suddenly you can see the big picture of the maze, and suddenly you can look back and you can see kind of where you've come from, how you got to where you are, and you can look and you can see kind of your final destination, where you're heading and the path that leads there. Well, in a time of crisis, God's word is like one of those raised platforms that kind of gets you up over, over your situation. Um, and I would add God's word 
applied by the Holy Spirit to our lives and in and, and, and our hearts is, is like this raised platform that allows you to see, okay, I can see God's faithfulness in the past. I can see where he's brought me. And I can see the final destination of where he's leading us sovereignly, um, sometimes even using evil people and sometimes destroying things, allowing things to be destroyed in our midst to make way for his greater answer. Um, but, and, I, and I realize that that's an incredibly hard attitude to have. Um, and I, I struggle personally to, to not be overwhelmed by, by the stuff around, even on a big picture in the news and also just individually in our lives. Um, just, uh, this just came to my mind. I, we went to, uh, to youth camp a couple weeks ago, um, which was awesome. And I had so much fun with, with, our, with our, our, our teenagers. And um, it, it, was, it was great, um, except for, for one part of the week, um, I uh, got poison ivy. Um, and that was not great. Um, and uh, some of our, some of our uh, students got them too. Chandler and Rachel got it because we were all working at the same place. Um, but uh, if you ever had poison ivy, it's not, it's not fun. And I, I really wouldn't even wish it on ISIS. Um, but, uh, but, and there were times when it felt like, is this poison ivy ever going to go away? And it's, it's on the remission now, but um, thanks in part to, to the couches and to the, the Donigans on, for giving us some medicine. Um, but my wife, Andy, was always really good to say, no, it's getting better. It's really, it really is getting better. You're, on the, you're over the hump of the worst part. And I'd be like, I don't, I don't feel like it's getting better. But, um, but she was always there to, to, to give me kind of a bigger perspective and to just remind me. And so that's why we, we desperately need the Spirit of God inside of us, which we have, since we are the temple of God, and the people of God around us to help us to be honest with the Lord, to not isolate ourselves from Him and from each other, but to honestly come vulnerably before God, to remember God's faithfulness in our past, um, and to appeal to God's glory for the present and for the future, um, and to know that, that He is going to answer these prayers. Um, it may not be, it probably won't be, in the way that we have in our minds, but he is for sure going to answer, answer these prayers. And we've, we've seen that. We, see, we already know the end of the story. Um, so, Father, we thank you, God, for your word. Um, God, I pray that, that these words, God, and, and this me, your broken vessel, God, that you would use this, God, to, 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 uh, to penetrate into our minds, into our hearts, God. And anything that was not of you, I pray that you would cause it to fall to the wayside. But we thank you, God, that you are faithful, that you are God, our King, both from of old and you are God of the future, and that you are sovereignly working your plan to that time of the new heavens and the new earth where your glory literally fills the earth. And we, everywhere we go, we're walking in your presence um, that is thick. So, Father, I pray that, that you would comfort those who need comfort this morning. I pray that you would encourage those who need encouragement, um, that you would get us up above our circumstances, up to, to those raised platforms of your word and of your Holy Spirit to, to see the bigger picture of what you're doing in our midst. We thank you, God. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.